This is Entheogen, talk about tools for generating the divine within. Find the notes and links for this and other episodes at entheogenshow.com. Sign up to receive an email when we release a new episode. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. Hey, everybody, this is Joe with a special announcement. We've just doubled our listener base to over 12,000 subscribers in the last two months. We'd like to take a moment to welcome our new listeners and to thank our listeners, new and old, for spreading the word and supporting the show. Going into season three of Entheogen, we've launched a Patreon campaign, and we'd like to invite you to please support us by pledging between $2 and $10 per episode. Please visit entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again. This is Entheogen, talk about tools for generating the divine within. Today is December 18th, 2016, and we are discussing the recent publication of studies from NYU and Johns Hopkins showing that psilocybin can reduce anxiety and depression in cancer patients. And we're very pleased to be joined by Sarah Menenga from NYU. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I should have asked, did I, did I pronounce your name right? <laughs> yeah, you did really, really well, actually. <laughs> Excellent. It's a, it's a difficult name. You did pretty well. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. And uh, so you are a doctor of neuroscience at uh, NYU? That is correct. And you're working in the NYU Experimental Therapeutics Laboratory. Um, and you, you were, you're working on this um, the recent study that came out, um, as I mentioned, showing that psilocybin, um, the active compound in uh, magic mushrooms, can reduce anxiety and depression in cancer patients. Um, the study showed that I guess up to 80% or more um, showed significant reduction of those symptoms. Um, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, so the, the kind of general study was looking at uh, folks who had uh, terminal cancer diagnoses was the initial plan. And we ended up opening the study to people um, who weren't necessarily terminal uh, diagnosis, but had a severe anxiety about death and dying um, associated with their cancer. Uh, so what we were looking at in particular, was there uh, anxiety and depression symptomology and some sort of other measures related to death anxiety, death transcendence, um, and some other things. And yeah, we saw um, surprisingly uh, quite large reductions in a number of those symptoms in these patients. And um, one of the participants uh, mentioned in the New York Times article, um, I think it was Octavian uh, Mihai, uh, mentioned, um, I guess in his case, he had already beat the cancer, but he was, um, st still struggling with this sort of anxiety around, you know, the potential, um, you know, uh, it, it, potentially coming back. Um, and so it wasn't so much that he was actively suffering, but he was suffering from, of course, the anxiety, you know, a side symptom of, of his, uh, original illness. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And um, one of the things that we hear from some of these cancer patients, and this is something that, um, that people confront a lot and, and it's kind of an unmet need right now in the healthcare system is um, a number of people find that the anxiety and depression associated with their diagnosis really, um, really takes hold once they've really gotten through their primary treatment schedule. Um, so a lot of people will kind of report that during the actual active treatment phase, when they're um, going through kind of radiation and chemotherapy and all the other standard treatments, um, they kind of have something to uh, utilize as like an outlet. They, they have something that they're actively fighting and a goal that they're actively trying to reach. Um, and that kind of serves to relieve a lot of the anxiety associated with the diagnosis. Um, and then a number of folks tend to have really, really severe um, anxiety once those primary treatments are over, because there's really there's really not a lot that uh, medical professionals can can tell you once you've made it through that course of treatment and um, you're momentarily in remission. They, you know, a lot of a lot of different types of cancers have a really high rate of remission or a lot of uh, high rate of recurrence, uh, even when you're in remission. And um, people really don't have a whole lot to do except wait and see 
uh, if it comes back. And so that so, tends to be a really, really anxiety provoking thing. Sarah, what do you, what do you think it is about the experience, uh, that, that the people that these patients undergo that, uh, sort of reframes, uh, this, this anxiety for them or reframes their life in some way? Uh, about like the treatment that we're doing. Yeah. Psilocybin treatment. Um, that's a really good question. So, so, so my field is neuroscience and kind of what I'm really interested in is, uh, the learning and memory, uh, aspect of all of this. So, um, to me, uh, to me, what kind of seems to change just on a very surface level, and this isn't something that we've kind of systematically measured in any of our studies, but it seems to be the way that these folks kind of go about their day-to-day lives and how they integrate kind of new moment-to-moment experiences into their past and whether these kind of new things um, pull up memories about their diagnosis and anxieties about potential future uh, recurrences or whether they kind of just exist in a moment-to-moment basis. And so to me, that has a lot to do with kind of memories and um, processing of kind of moment-to-moment perception. So that's kind of kind of my focus on on the whole thing. And um, the the interesting thing to me about the psychedelic drugs that we're using and kind of psilocybin in particular is uh, what we do know about the kind of acute, acute effects of these drugs. So what happens kind of within the day when these people are taking them um, is that there's a, a pretty big breakdown in the sort of uh, top-down processing that happens. Um, so the, you know, the things that people by and large report when they take magic mushrooms are, you know, synesthesia type things. So they can see, um, they can taste colors or they can see music or, you know, whatever. There's some crossing of the senses. Um, but there's also a lot of kind of breakdown in elementary visual stimuli and things like that. So people report a lot of geometrical um, colors and shapes and things like that. So it seems like at least momentarily, uh, the whole kind of structure by which your perceptions are normally um, framed and the the way that things normally kind of should appear to you gets broken down and you kind of start from scratch in, in terms of just elementary perceptions. Um, so to me, it's the whole thing is kind of a reset for the brain. Is that sort of what uh, Robin Carhart Harris calls the default mode network, sort of interrupting or disrupting the default mode network of the brain? That has a lot to do with it. So, um, so the default mode network kind of has to do with um, whether you're doing kind of internalized thoughts versus externalized thoughts. Um, so it has a lot to do with things like uh, meditation and um, kind of emotional feelings and things that are um, very unique to you as a, as a person internally um, versus external. And the the interesting thing about the studies, um, the Robin Carhart Harris, uh, like the neuroimaging papers, are Um, We're looking at the the acute effects of the drug, right? So we're looking at what's going on in the brain while these people are actually kind of experiencing this this acute drug state, right? So what people would normally call like the trip associated with these things. And um, what we see is a a huge breakdown in the normal structure by which um, this whole network is connected to other networks. And um, theoretically, if you were to kind of temporarily break down that barrier between kind of internal thoughts and external thoughts and allow it to sort of reformat itself going forward, um, that could lead to entirely different thought patterns, uh, even after the acute effects of the drug have have worn off. Interesting. Sarah, this is a little bit off topic, but uh, you mentioned uh, sort of the the visual uh, stimuli and geometric shapes. Um, This is always Mm -hmm. this has been one of the. sort of uh, recurring topics of conversation or, or debate that we've had about why why exactly that happens and whether or not in part some of it is just suggestion um, 
when that happens, but it seems like you have a pretty clear explanation for why that happens. I mean, so it's, I mean, I have a, I have a, like a good hypothesis based on kind of what we know in, in terms of basic neuroscience and neuroimaging and in connection with what um, people tend to report. It's something that's still really, really understudied. There's, there's really not a whole lot of uh, neuroscience on like how these things work, honestly, like we still really don't um, fully understand the, the neurobiological basis of hallucinations. Um, and one of the kind of one of the, the leading theories that exists um, in terms of what causes all of those perceptual changes is that um, so 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 my background is in um, kind of learning and memory across the lifespan. Right. So how does one's uh, sense of self develop from the moment of birth all the way through them through the time that they die? And if you think about it, kind of infants come into the world and they don't have a lot of um, overarching ideas about the way that things are or should be. Um, so they learn a lot about basic colors and shapes and how those things form objects and they can eventually start to attach language to those things. And at a certain age, they develop their own kind of sense of self versus other. And they understand themselves and other people as entities that kind of are persisting in their nature and don't go away when they're out of their perceptual field. Um, and kind of throughout life, you can develop this whole kind of uh, processing of, of how things are. And so once you kind of reach your adult life, everything that you perceive um, is kind of a, a mixture of what you perceive on a, on a bottom up basis, like a raw um, angles and lines and colors sort of deal um, that mm -hmm. gets gets um, kind of mixed together and tinted by what you know about things. So, you know, that a stool looks a certain way and you know that a house looks a certain way and mountains look a certain way. And that's how a lot of like visual illusions and things like that happen. They'll kind of mess with the way that your brain um, is used to seeing things to trick you into seeing different things that are actually there. Mm -hmm. And so the kind of leading theory about the hallucinations that are induced by these drugs temporarily is that you get a, a real breakdown and kind of scramble of that set of information about the way that things kind of should be. And you revert to more of an infantile state of perception where you're just kind of seeing shapes and colors and raw angles and things like that. Wow. All right. And, uh, do you think there's, uh, would this change according to the, the substance or, or would this be similar through, throughout all the different substances? Because it seems to be when I first became interested, for example, in, in ayahuasca and I'd be reading um, stories of uh, pe people's uh, ayahuasca experiences, it seems like there's a, a very distinctive um, visual experience uh, and they seem to kind of match across the board. And so that's, I guess, where I came up kind of with this idea that maybe it was a suggestion. Maybe it was just people reading each other's stories and then seeing the same thing um, or whether there was something particular about each um, substance that maybe affected the brain in a way that, that created a different perception. That's a great question. Um, and I think probably both is the, is the best answer I can give. So um, on one hand, there does seem to be a lot of overlap. And like just the fact that all of these drugs um, are kind of classified in this overarching group of hallucinogens or psychedelics or whatever um, kind of name you give them, um, people do recognize obvious similarities between the experiences. Um, mm -hmm. So the sort of perceptions um, and also a lot of the auditory things that happen. Um, a lot of these drugs from psilocybin to ayahuasca to MDMA, um, all of these different things are associated pretty heavily with kind of repetitive rhythmic music, um, mm. low lighting, a lot of different kind of uh, perceptual stimuli that are, that are very similar and that people seem to um, kind of find particular meaning in or enjoy particularly in these different states. There's definitely a, a lot of overlap in terms of um, the acute effects of these drugs. 
Um, but there's also definitely a lot of uh, a, a lot of differences. And I think the the biggest overlap is probably in the perceptual changes that happen. So like visual changes and auditory changes and that sort of thing. Um, and then the differences tend to be in sort of um, uh, sorts of things that are kind of more difficult to, to measure. So things like anxiety and depression, um, emotional expression, uh, all sorts of different kind of psychological constructs that, that we don't have good measurements for um, seem to seem to change in different ways with these different drugs. Um, so that's why you see kind of different applications in the in the science field. Yeah, and it seems drugs. like su such a difficult thing to to measure in any way, right? I mean, the the, the perceptions of each of each person, and uh, so I don't know. So the, it just seems like a very very difficult thing to to be able to study. It really is, and like especially because, um, so like you were saying earlier, is you know, is are some of these effects because of um, suggestions that are that are given, and and yeah, we absolutely think that's true. So we talk a lot about um, kind of set and setting. And sure. uh, so, you know, the idea that the, the mental framework that you're in when you go in to take these drugs and also the kind of physical environment that you're in um, have a lot to do with with the actual experience that you have. Um, and that also could have a lot to do with this kind of breakdown in overarching suggestibility, if you will. Um, and that makes it particularly hard to study because once you kind of start to ask somebody, well, what are you perceiving and how does it look and can you describe it? It, it, it inherently changes what they're perceiving. Um, so it's really tricky to try and measure these things without influencing them by the way that you're measuring them. And so that's sure. You're, you're also catching the person in, uh, probably in a moment where the, linguistically they're not too sharp. Um, yeah, really. So. I mean, it's pretty hard to give someone a survey, um, in the middle of a, in the middle of a psilocybin session and sounds like a buzzkill. Uh, <laughs> it really, it really is. And like, you I mind mean, taking you know, the survey? It, and it, it depends. Like if we're, if our outcome is a clinical variable, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to sacrifice helping someone with anxiety about their cancer diagnosis to try and understand their perceptual changes. So like it's, it's a, it's a trade-off every time we try to do something. That sounds like something to study later on down the road. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the trickiest parts is trying to figure out kind of what order to do these things in, because like, obviously we want to help, we want to help people. Um, and they seem to be helping a lot of people, but we also need to understand kind of how they're working in order to maximize our, our likelihood of helping people. So, sure. so it's, it's really difficult with, with limited funding to, to pick which studies to do and how to do them and kind of maximize what we can do here. Right. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the, uh, a little bit anyway, about the paradox of, um, you know, trying to study a mystical experience, which, you know, is characterized by some amount of ineffability, you know, so it's just like, it's, it's kind of a paradox to even try to, uh, you know, to draw the boundaries of these different experiences and, and document it and, and, uh, and study it in general. Um, and, you know, and some people might think, um, that these, some of the finer points about, you know, the geometric shapes and, and auditory effects and things might just be, you know, eye candy or ear candy. But one thing I found really interesting in the New York times, um, article was they mentioned that the intensity of the mystical experience described by, by patients correlated with the, de the degree to which the depression and anxiety decreased. Um, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it seems like this, you know, the actual particular experience is very important to the overall, you know, success of the treatment in some way. Yeah, that, that seems to be very true. And so kind of generally across the board, what we've seen is that, um, the intensity of the experience is really what matters. And the, the actual kind of like content of the experience is, is a little bit less important. Um, so some of our participants had very um, euphoric experiences and some of our participants had really, really difficult experiences um, that were challenging and emotionally draining. Um, and 
both of those um, were were reported to kind of be beneficial by the majority of our patients. So, so it seems to um, it seems to be a very individualized treatment in terms of what uh, actual content is is helpful for, for people. And yeah, one of the best kind of proxies that we have for measuring the intensity of the experience is these perceptual changes because those are the types of things that are easy to ask about in words and that people can kind of easily report on. And that does give us a bit of insight into kind of how intense the experience was, um, but we're still missing a lot in terms of, of what exactly that intensity is or what it means or what it does to the brain or to the person or, or any of those things. It also seems to be a bit of like a touch point for, for some of the people going through the experience. Like um, the person I mentioned earlier um, saw black smoke rising from his body that seemed to correlate with uh, like a release of the fear, the fear around the cancer returning. Um, so mm-hmm. the, the visual effects and the kind of like, um, you know, in, internal experience and um, it, it seems like it, it, uh, it also helps maybe bring some of the, you know, the learning back in some way. Like it, it helps people remember the experience and, and kind of take that away possibly. That's very true. I think, I think it gives them, I mean, at the very least, I think it gives them something kind of somewhat tangible to connect different, um, emotional changes to. Um, right. so it's really difficult to say, you know, Oh, when I was floating through nothingness in space and had no idea where I was or if I existed, that's when I felt better. Right. Um, it's a lot easier to kind of explain it in terms of something that, you know, you can, mm-hmm. you can concretely describe at a moment that it happened. Um, and we see that a lot sometimes, uh, with, uh, with the music playlist that we play. So people will kind of use that as an anchor, um, in terms of, of when different things happened and, and use that. <laughs> experience. Now you guys, um, I, I learned also from the same article, um, that at NYU, you, you sort of use more like new age music, world music. Um, they mentioned specifically Brian Eno, sitars and didgeridoos, um, whereas Johns Hopkins, uh, favored Western classical music. So is there any sense of like how the music affected the experience, you know, aside from, like you said, just the way that it helps a patient correlate, you know, where in the experience they were and what were they, they were experiencing when? That's a great question. Um, we don't know. We haven't collected any really uh, systematic data on the music, um, but that's something that we're really interested in doing. And just kind of generally speaking, it seems um, like personally from what I've heard and read from the participants, it seems like um, they all really enjoy the music and they prefer the fact that they had music over over not having music. And one of the reasons that they bring up is that it kind of helps them judge the, pass, the passing of time and where they're at and give them something kind of to, to hold on to. Interesting. Um, but they, they don't seem to have a whole lot of opinion about uh, what the actual music is. And a number of people actually say, uh, you know, that's not the type of music that I would have listened to before or that I would have picked for myself. Um, but it worked and it was, and it was pleasurable and good while it was happening. So, um, so that kind of might have to do with the suggestibility thing. Um, maybe, it's just having something there. Maybe it's something that they've never experienced. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure, but we would like really much like to um, collect some more data on, on the impact of different types of music um, on, on the, the quality of these people's experiences. Well, it's, it's so striking just how much um, it, the protocol is really designed around, um, you know, the experience of psychedelics and, and maybe even informed by, uh, you know, what we learned from the 60s forward, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, plush, uh, plush carpeting and pillows. And, um, you know, specifically the, the article mentioned, uh, you know, the chalice that the, the, um, the psilocybin <laughs> pills, were, you know, were put in. It was all yes. very like um, ritualized and, and uh, you know, there's a statue of Buddha and stuff like that. And I mean, how many drug trials are there where like those things are significant, you know, 
points in the experience. Um, yeah. It's fascinating to me that, that, that um, you know, that you're able to accommodate uh, the unique experience of, of a psychedelic and, uh, you know, and, and give people what makes them feel comfortable because I guess set and setting is just such a you know, fundamental part of the experience, right? Yeah. And I mean, one of, one of the, uh, you know, one, one thing that's really interesting and this kind of relates to something we were talking about a little bit ago, which is that people, uh, really tend to kind of downplay the, the external perceptual, uh, sort of stimulus things that, that, uh, tend to accompany these experiences. Right. So people are, um, not particularly interested in the clinical value of the auditory or visual hallucinations or any of that sort of thing. Um, but really the seem to be pretty, pretty intimately involved in the whole experience. And if you, um, you know, give somebody very jarring stimuli, then, then you do very much have the potential to send them into a very anxiety provoking place. And, you know, what would be kind of classically called a bad trip. Um, so, you know, while maybe those aren't the end all be all to the, the clinical benefit, they're absolutely crucial for, um, for maximizing whatever the clinical benefit is from these drugs. I remember reading uh, when Rick Strassman did his uh, famous DMT studies, uh, and I, I, I just kept thinking reading it, and like because that, this protocol had not been followed, and it seemed like, well, what a, what a, what an awful uh, hospital to have to be the worst place. <laughs> right. you know I mean, just, the just traditional to put somebody in that state of mind and, in yeah. a traditional hospital is just it's just a nightmare. It sounds like a nightmare. Right. <laughs> you know? For 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 these people, for the cancer study in particular, we were really um, you know concerned about. The, the medicalization of all of it. So these, these were folks that, um, you know, their anxiety came from a medical place. Um, so they're a lot of their kind of worst memories and experiences in their lives have taken place at a hospital um, or in a doctor's office with a bunch of, you know, medical equipment and people in white coats. And um, it was, you know, it was about a medical diagnosis that they had that was um, kind of predicting their death. Um, so for the, for the cancer folks in particular, we were um, really concerned about uh, about mimicking kind of a, a comfortable home life and, and not bringing about feelings that they were in some sort of very medical situation. Do, do, do you guys collaborate? Uh, I mean, amongst the different institutions that are sort of carrying out the same type of research, I mean, Johns Hopkins or Imperial College on, on things like the protocols or the music and is yeah, there a conversation that happens there? Okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, um, so yeah, we try to, you know, there's, there's not a ton of this research going on. There's, there's only a handful of institutions and people in the, in the world that are doing these things. Um, and it's only kind of been in the last decade or so that all, all of these kind of individual people that have been quietly working on these things have come up into the forefront and kind of, it's been publicized and, and we can start kind of openly, um, working together and, and calling this a, a main focus of what we're doing because the, the public perception of it is starting to change. Um, but yeah, we, um, we definitely talk, we try to do our best to, um, to not kind of do exactly the same study as someone else is doing, but do something complementary so that we can kind of maximize our interpretations from both. Um, so we try to do very similar things with just a couple of differences and, um, we're thinking about potentially doing some, some very larger, like for phase three, uh, cancer study. When once we progress onto the the phase three trial, it'll be a, a very large collaboration between several institutions. Very exciting. Yeah. Well, it, it is um, in, in general, what what sort of uh, criticism do you get from? Uh, I mean, the academic or medical community on this. I mean, I guess the, w one of the things that comes to mind maybe is sample size, or or sometimes a lack of a double blind, or what, what sort of other criticisms come up? I mean, is it is it a difficult 
uh, world to maneuver or is has the public perception that's changed a, enough that it's uh, okay? That's a pretty, that's a great question. I mean, so, so personally, like, I mean, I'm pretty young. Um, I just got my PhD like less than a year ago. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to really be brought up in the kind of generation of scientists that are, are really interested in these things and have really um, open minds and kind of worn around to experience the whole um, backlash that happened in the, in the sixties and seventies in terms of science. And, um, so I think the, the, the most criticisms that I've kind of experienced are not in terms of the actual science or the quality of the science. It's about the politics associated with it and the kind of potential, um, things that could happen if these things were to become kind of legalized and get into the wrong hands. Yeah. People will Um, get better. (laughs) And, and I mean, like, so like, it depends, like, yeah, if, if, if we're, if we're using them correctly, absolutely. But there's, there is a lot of um, potential for these things to, to do a lot of damage. So like, you know, the, the last thing that we want is for people to kind of take these studies that are, you know, very small preliminary studies. And we don't want people to go absolutely nuts and just start taking a ton of psychedelics and not preparing properly and really not mm-hmm. processing it and doing it in, um, in kind of unsafe or anxiety provoking settings. Um, because, because those sorts of things, it, it seems like the, the beauty in these drugs is really the individualized, um, effects and how dependent they are on the kind of suggestibility of the people during and, and after the experience. Um, so, so the, the criticisms that we get are really very much just be careful. Um, don't, um, don't kind of go too fast, too, too much, too quick and, and, um, and let things go, go poorly. Cause they, they certainly could. Um, but that's not anything that's unique to psilocybin. I mean, all pharmacological medical treatments can can be used incorrectly, um, and they are uh, quite a bit of people <laughs> sure. prescription drugs. Um, that's a huge a huge problem. Um, so so that's not something that's unique to psilocybin, but it is something that um, that usually you don't encounter when you're kind of working in pharmacological. There also seems to be sort of a, a big uh, double double standard there, right? It's sort of like what, what you know, the, like you, you mentioned, there's an abuse of certain pharmacological substances, and that is kind of almost accepted in a, in a lot of places. It's something that people are very open about, and uh, and however, if you bring up something like this, it's like, whoa, that's cra- that's crazy, you know? It's a completely. Yeah completely out of the, uh, the realm. And I do, I do think it's funny sometimes reading, you know, and of course we agree completely that, that, uh, these things have to be taken the right way. And in, in order to get the good experience, it's not something that, uh, should just get out to the general public. I think that was Albert Hoffman's greatest fear, right? Mm-hmm. Was that the yeah. general public just get, you know, but, uh, but then you, you get a kick kind of out of, but, but, you know, guns are legal, right? Like, like, yeah. It's like, and it's tricky. I mean, I read, I read something not that long ago saying, um, and I haven't, you know, checked up on the legitimacy of this, but saying that, um, opiates this year killed more people than guns did. Um, wow. and that, I mean, that is a shocking, shocking statistic. And, and the, the number of overdoses on prescription and non-prescription drugs is massive. They're like an, uh, a lot of people are, don't just die, but are very, very, um, intensely harmed by these things. And, and that's a real threat that exists anytime you're ever doing any sort of pharmacological manipulation with anyone. Um, And I would say yet those, those substances are still more socially acceptable than, uh, psychedelics. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at a a party or something like that, if you were to hear uh, two people speaking about, they, they would speak openly about that without, you know, 
too much yeah. being too wary. I think. Yeah. I heard somebody speak of uh, what they called hard drugs in kind of hushed tones, and I was trying to determine, you know, wh- which drugs they're talking about, and you know, I'm guessing I'm like heroin, you know, wow, um, oh man, and they're like, no, 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 cocaine. I mean, I don't. What, what's a hard drug? And they and they didn't want to say, but they they revealed that it was acid. I'm like, yeah. really? That's a hard drug? I mean, I just never would have yeah, thought of it that right. way. It's it's fascinating to me. Well, what about really- the amb- Ambien as well? I mean, that, that's a substance. I grew up in New York City, and I but then I left for a long time. When I came back, I was blown away by the number of people that had uh, Ambien prescriptions and just talked so openly about basically abusing a pharmacological substance that they didn't need. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like any college that you go to, people talk about Adderalls. Um, I mean, there's there, you know, we're talking about, you know, pretty powerful stimulants and sedatives. Um, They're highly addictive. Um, They have a lot of potential to do a lot of damage in the wrong hands and, and used incorrectly. And those substances, all the things that we've just talked about, not a single one of those is, um, a schedule one drug in the right. United States. So, um, you know, LSD, marijuana, um, right. these things are listed as schedule one, which by definition, um, have no medical value and have a high potential for abuse. Although, you know, I, I work in a hospital and the, probably, I don't think I, the whole time I've worked there, I've had a single person come in and heard of anyone meeting anyone who comes in and says, Oh, I'm just, you know, completely addicted to LSD and I can't stop taking it. It's ruining my life. I, <laughs> right. you know, I can't do my job because of it. Uh, it just Until doesn't today. happen. <laughs> so, but, uh, was that, was that part of, did that form any part of the patient selection process, the sort of their patient's past history with any substances, um, you know, at all in whether they were legal or illegal or if they had any other experiences uh, prior to the, the study? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. So um, some of our participants were uh, kind of psychedelic naive, meaning they've never taken any psychedelics before and some of them had. Um, and there, that like having had taken psychedelics in the past wasn't necessarily exclusionary. Um, but we do have kind of a limit on the, the number of times that someone could have used it, um, for a number of reasons. We want to kind of minimize the chance of, um, of fueling any sort of addictive procedure. Um, but we also, you know, if someone's had a number of psychedelic experiences or any that have been particularly recent, um, then we kind of think the the potential for them to get a lot of benefit out of having another one is is low. So, um, so those, so yeah, we definitely consider um, their kind of psychedelic history, and that's something that our, our therapists talk to our patients about um, during the screening process. Um, uh, but it's not necessarily exclusionary to have to have used any sort of kind of legal or illegal uh, substance before. Just um, drilling down to that, uh, you know, double standard. Um, if you were to be researching something else, like a, a new drug, you know, that no one's ever heard of that could be used for, for pain management or uh, or anxiety or something else. Um, I mean, it's likely you would not face the same kind of criticism, right? That, you know, be careful, yeah. be careful what you what you create here because people are going to abuse it. I mean, that's it, it's it's just unfair that that uh, you're doing this kind of psychedelic research is is so um, it's just stigmatized still to this day. Yeah, that's really true. And I mean, that's actually one of the one of the kind of tricks that a lot of people are interested in is kind of figuring out the neuroscience behind how these things are working so that they can create a, like a new molecule that's not psilocybin and not LSD, but does a lot of the same things um, in the hopes that they can kind of get around some of those stigmas. And, you know, that's, 
it's kind of unfortunate that you have to go through that much work to, right. to sidestep, um, you know, <laughs> like a history, but, but, um, but yeah, that is something that people are kind of actively working on and talking about. Sure. I mean, we've got something that, you know, nature produced and, and we found, you know, useful for, you know, <laughs> dozens, if not hundreds of years or longer, um, you know, historically, and, uh, we have to find something new, you know, that science can create, uh, just because of the cultural sort of uh, bias and, you know, stig- you know, stigma around it. Uh, it's really unfortunate, but I guess the market incentive is there, uh, as well. So at least that's lined up yeah, if, to yeah. find something new, right? Yeah. There's, there's a couple of, of, uh, kind of things that are lining up there also, you know, patentable and that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's a number of reasons why people might want to create a new molecule, but, but it is really unfortunate that, you know, we have a molecule and it's, it's right there and staring <laughs> us in the face and it's really easy to make and get and produce and distribute. Um, but we, we can't use it. <laughs> Right. Uh, it was uh, none other than Albert Hoffman himself who synthesized psilocybin after synthesizing LSD. He's not just a one hit wonder. Uh, <laughs> yeah. he, he I like his first hit. album a lot better. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is really unfortunate and it's, you know, it's uh, one of the kind of sad things about science is even if we even if we do come up with a new molecule that does all of the clinical things and, you know, whatever, it, it's going to be another at least decade, if not longer, before that's actually approved and able to be used in people and prescribed and, and all of those sorts of things. So, you know, an, an entire generation of people will miss out on it. Yeah, it's, it's tragic, what, really. Sarah, what about the um, the sort of um, while the patients are undergoing the experience, um, the sort of preparation that uh, the person who is going to spend that time with them um, mm-hmm. I imagine now that these kind of studies have been going on in different places. And I know when we spoke with, uh, with Rick Doblin, he, um, he was mentioning sort of the, the, the kind of now they have a better idea or a grasp on how to train people, um, to be present. But it, that, that must also be one of the kind of side benefits of the study is that you're also learning how to train people properly for the moment when, you know, if these things hopefully are, uh, approved and become treatments, uh, it's going to be very necessary to have uh, a class of people properly trained in order to make sure that the, the treatment is effective. And, um, so is that is, you know, how, how has that experience been with your study? That's a great question. So, um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So kind of one of our main, uh, kind of, I probably our main kind of side goal besides just the actual science and investigating the clinical efficacy of these drugs is, um, getting a pipeline in place for, um, producing people that can actually give them if they ever are to get approved. Um, so it's, once again, it's really difficult because we can't just, you know, do a whole bunch of studies on different types of therapy, um, because we don't want to jeopardize the clinical outcomes that we're trying to study. Um, so, you know, we do everything that we can to kind of, um, standardize and measure, uh, different things that we're doing. Um, and we definitely do have a, have a much better idea than we did. Um, certainly in the sixties and seventies, a lot of studies were done with, with, you know, zero preparation or support. Um, and we've come a long way from there, uh, but we still have a lot, a lot to learn. So, uh, as of right now, there, there really isn't any kind of formal standardized, um, like training program and how to become like a psychedelic psychotherapist or um, kind of whatever the term will, will end up being. Uh, but we do have a number, a couple of individuals that um, have collaborated with a couple of different groups at all of the different kind of universities that are doing these things. Um, we have a manual that we've written. Um, MAPS has a manual that they've written. 
And we have done a, a bit of collaboration between us just to kind of compare and talk about different things that we're doing that we found that are particularly uh, helpful. And we are, we are doing, uh, we're constantly thinking about how we would eventually implement uh, a training program for how to do these sorts of things. And uh, one of the things that we're working on right now is um, sort of qualitative interviews of these participants. So doing like an open-ended sort of interview with them where we just talk about their experience and what sorts of things they found helpful and, and uh, distracting and that kind of stuff to, to get a better idea of, of uh, what they were in favor of and what they think was helpful and not helpful. Is, is there any Very precedent? Cool. Is there a precedent for this type of um, therapeutic model where you have, you know, I know in the case of MDMA therapy, oftentimes a couple, like two, two therapists, um, you know, in the case of psilocybin, I'm not sure what the, the team is like of therapists, but combined with um, a drug, is there any precedent for that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, so there, there's a history of, you know, kind of psychiatric medicine where there's a therapist and, um, that therapist prescribes a drug and, um, then kind of reviews and talks to the patient about how it's going and adjusts the dose or changes to a different drug or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of like a, like a team of people, uh, um, I mean, so, so my background is not in psychiatry. I, I, my, all of my training was in uh, neuroscience and actually worked with, with rats. Um, so okay. <laughs> this is totally outside of my area of expertise, but, um, but yeah, as far as I know, um, this, uh, kind of therapy dyad that we do where we have a male and a female therapist, um, that seems to be kind of unique to the, to the psychedelic, uh, sort of treatments. And, uh, to answer your question, yeah, we do have a, uh, a pair of therapists with all of our, our cancer folks and all, all of the psilocybin studies that we do. Um, and we try to have a, a male and a female therapist work together. And uh, generally speaking, um, the way that we do it is we will have one therapist that is kind of particularly uh, trained and geared towards um, preparing the patient, supporting them, and then integrating uh, after their uh, psychedelic experience. Um, so that's one of the therapists. And then the other therapist is more focused on the actual um, kind of indication that we're addressing. So if it's cancer, they're talking to them about um, their cancer and end of life and what their anxieties are and um, the source of their depression and that kind of thing. Um, if it's one of our addiction studies and they're talking to them about uh, their relationship with the substance and kind of how it impacts their day-to-day -day life. Um, but, but that's kind of the general model that one person um, is focused around the psychedelic experience and the other person is focused around the kind of... Uh, the uh, clinical outcome that we're focused on. Interesting. So in your, in your studies, uh, it is a team of, of therapists who are both, um, you know, uh, licensed therapists, uh, unlike the MDMA therapy that we've talked about on the show, where there's sort of that, I, I guess we're calling it the Rick Doblin clause, uh, where mm -hmm. one of the therapists uh, can be, you know, not a, necessarily a licensed therapist, but in more of like a supporting role, but part of that, you know, either a husband and wife team or male and female team. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we, we do have, um, we have kind of a, I guess you could call it a Rick, Rick Doblin ish rule. Um, so <laughs> we, one of our therapists, um, has to be a, a medical doctor. So they have to have an MD, um, and they are there specifically, um, to, to help with any sort of medical thing that, that might happen. So if the person has some sort of severe, um, anxiety reaction or anything like that, we have a medical doctor in, in the room with the patient at all times, just in case. Um, and then the other person, um, does have to be, uh, somehow licensed. Um, but, but we have a lot of flexibility in terms of like what exactly that means. Um, so they can be a psychiatrist, they can be a clinical psychologist, they can be a social worker. 
Um, they can be uh, kind of any number of different things. Uh, they could potentially be, uh, we have someone who's a nurse who's, who's getting ready to do these things. Um, so, so we have a lot of flexibility in terms of what the second person can be, but they have to have some sort of kind of professional training, um, in something that, that is that is related. I'm really hoping that someday, uh, this becomes, uh, like a field and a, and a, a specific position, the, the sort of psychedelic therapist. Well, first of all, so Rick Doblin can finally get the job that he's been preparing for his entire life. <laughs> 30 years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But apart, apart from that, I think it might, it might uh, inspire a career change in my, in yeah. my own, uh, in my own life. Um, but I'm curious. Psychiatrist if that were to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm curious. Uh, also, you know, obviously the the results are overwhelmingly positive. Um, however, uh, were there any particularly negative outcomes to the study? I mean, apart from I, I can imagine some patients had particularly difficult um, experiences. But I mean, a, kind of after that experience ended, um, did it continue to be difficult, or were, was there anybody that was uh, negatively affected afterwards? That is a good question. Um, so I, I wasn't like personally involved with all the patients from the cancer study. I was more of a kind of data analysis person. Um, but from what I know in terms of, in terms of the data, um, we didn't have any persisting, um, serious adverse events. So no kind of serious treatment related, um, problems that didn't go away, uh, during the, the effects of the drugs. So we had a couple of people that they had things like, uh, mild anxiety or headaches, um, during the time that they were in the treatment room, um, taking the psilocybin. Um, but all those things, uh, were kind of gone by the time they left by the end of the day. Um, so medically speaking, there were no, um, lasting negative impacts whatsoever. Um, in terms of like anxiety and depression, there were a couple of people who didn't have kind of particularly large decreases in those things. Um, so there, you know, were one or two patients that kind of, you know, didn't have this miraculous, around, um, but that's pretty expected. Um, but I, I don't think there was anyone who got particularly um, worse on any of those measures. I, I don't, off the top of my head, know of any individual participants that um, that increased in anxiety or depression. Um, and I, I know that we didn't have any participants that um, kind of developed any new psychiatric or clinical um, problems because of this. Uh, so, so in terms of negative outcomes, it was pretty good for, for a clinical trial and, and, um, certainly very safe medically speaking. Um, and you know, it, it was a fairly small sample where we're, we're just starting out here, but, but so far very promising. What about the uh, people, the participants who, who got the niacin, um, instead of psilocybin, you know, and then of course they got the other, uh, dose, uh, at, you know, separately, they got one of each basically, um, you know, was there any sort of like level of disappointment or, you know, anticipation, um, that they had around, you know, hopefully having this treatment and, and ending up with the, uh, I mean, what do you call it? It's not a, um, uh, it's an, it's an like active an placebo or yeah, yeah, yeah. So we call it, we call it an active placebo, meaning that it's not, um, it's not, you know, we don't give them something and then nothing happens. Right. Um, we, we want it to somewhat kind of blind the effects of the drug. So there are kind of physiological symptoms. People feel tingly and different. Um, and you know, not a lot of people have experienced what niacin feels like. Um, so, so those things can be kind of labeled as like the onset of a, of a potential psychedelic experience. Um, but we, we did have uh, a couple of participants that actually did, mentioned that, and this is another kind of unfortunate 
problem with doing these things in a research context, but they, they did have a bit of anxiety um, in terms of the very beginning of their experience and, and what was going to happen. So for the the first medication, so every so every participant had two medication sessions. One of them was an active session where they got psilocybin, and the other one was uh, kind of active placebo where they got niacin, and they didn't know which order they were going to get them in. So when they came in for the first session, um, a number of participants did say um, that they had a bit of anxiety and um, that they thought it was kind of unfortunate that they had to be in this blinded situation because they were sitting there kind of guessing, you know, is is this psilocybin? Is it not? Am I, do I feel normal? Do I not feel normal? I'm not really sure. Um, and they were kind of like self-analyzing that whole thing. Um, and so that did give them a bit of anxiety. Um, and, and, and the people who did report that said, um, that it was better the second time around when they, when they knew what they had already gotten and, and what to expect the second time. Sure. I'm, I'm imagining the, uh, the patient who got, you know, obviously got the psilocybin the first time and had experience. I imagine him like dragging his feet on going back to the second <laughs> session. You know, just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, and yeah. And a number of people. So, so it, that's actually interesting. Cause I mean, that was, that's mixed. Um, a couple of people will say, um, I actually feel a little bit of relief and I, you know, I feel like I know now that I have a day to relax and continue to process and cause they're, they're with us all day. So um, if they're working or whatever, it's a day that they get off work and they just lay in this comfortable room with um, two of their therapists that they know very well. Um, so, so it's a, it is a positive experience, generally speaking, whether or not they get the psilocybin. Um, and so, yeah, I think the, the anxiety just comes from, from not knowing um, kind of what they're in for for the next several hours. <laughs> is, the, is the blind broken after the first session or, or is it just that they just figure it out pretty much? Or is, but yeah, do you no, officially... we don't. We don't yeah. yeah, no, we don't officially break the blind until the whole thing's over, um, but we do ask uh, participants and the therapists to complete a guess form. Um, so they guess which per, which treatment they got, and then they give us a certainty level. Um, and it's interesting because we do have a number of people that will say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm 30% sure that I got psilocybin or something wow. like that. <laughs> um, and there, there, there really is a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think I haven't like done the analysis, but I think by and large, they're pretty accurate. Um, but there's, there is still a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I'm going to leave some wiggle room there. Um, so, so there is, um, there is a, a deal of blinding going on. This is all of this is making me believe I need to try some niacin. And I mean, if it's, and if also, it's that convincing, <laughs> you know. 30% the effect of uh, psilocybin. Yeah. It's yeah. okay for like a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, another, another thing is, is just like lying on the couch with blindfolds and head blindfold and headphones for eight hours, um, with people who are there to support you like that in itself, um, seems to have a lot of therapeutic value. Sure. Um, sure. So, yeah. What, what was I, the, what, um, Oh, sorry, Kev, but, um, uh, Sarah, what was the, uh, it, I think those people also reported that it, it did improve, like, a re, you know, it gave them a reduction in anxiety, even with the niacin, as you mentioned, you know, so just being there with headphones for eight, eight hours or something like that. Didn't they, wasn't it some other, you know, smaller percentage? I mean, clearly 80% who got the psilocybin, uh, showed significant, significant reduction, but what was the percentage for, um, for the niacin trials? Um, so that's a good question. So, so the way that we looked at it was, um, the kind of 80% measure is, is over everyone, regardless of whether they got psilocybin first or second. Mm -hmm. Um, so we didn't kind of calculate like a percentage like that for, um, for niacin because they, everyone who got niacin also got psilocybin. Mm -hmm. Um, but what we kind of the, the interpretation that we took home was that, uh, having an additional, 
uh, kind of integration session after your active psilocybin session kind of helped more. Um, so we did see, so when we had the first medication session, half of our participants got psilocybin and the other half got niacin and, um, both groups did improve over that session. Uh, the psilocybin group did improve significantly more than the niacin group did. Um, but they both improved over where they were. And then when we did the second medication session where they flipped treatments and the people who got the niacin previously got the psilocybin, um, their reduction in anxiety and depression uh, was comparable numbers wise to the reduction that people experienced in the first session. So it didn't matter um, whether they got uh, psilocybin first or second, they had about the same benefit, um, which was larger than the benefit that they experienced with niacin. Um, but the niacin combined with this whole therapy platform did also provide a modest benefit. Gotcha. You, um, Sarah, so you, you mentioned, uh, that, that people have, uh, that sort of, or get uh, a positive experience out of just spending the day there and lying on a couch and being supported. And it made me, uh, think of one of the patients uh, that was mentioned in the article, um, who I think had previously been in law enforcement and was a little bit worried about the experience. Everything said that, um, you know, you have that you have to approach the session with the right intentions, um, and because you're going to meet yourself. And I thought that was a, a very interesting way to put it, and maybe partially explains why someone lying on a sofa an entire day, even if they've only taken something like niacin, might might also um, have you know some kind of experience because they're actually taking time out to spend time with themselves. Um, which I think is something that in modern society we just don't do very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one, I mean, one of the things that we're interested in is other sort of non-drug induced altered states of consciousness. Um, so uh, Samantha Padraberic, who also talked at um, Horizons, uh, she is also working on our, our psilocybin alcohol trial. And one of the things that she's really interested in is looking at different kind of meditation styles, um, things like mindfulness-based stress reduction um, and other sort of non-pharmacological ways of uh, sort of achieving that same or a, a similar degree of um, an altered state of consciousness and mm-hmm. seeing if we can achieve some of the, either some of the same kind of clinical benefits from from those sorts of things, or if we can use some of those practices to kind of sustain uh, some of the clinical benefits that we see from the psilocybin, for example. Interesting. So that's the, uh, the, the study in, uh, alcoholism you mentioned, um, studying that, you know, psilocybin for that purpose as well. Um, and the other study that's ongoing now, or that I guess you're recruiting for is, um, studying the effect of psilocybin, um, among, I guess, clergy with, uh, you know, how, like a mystical effect or how it affects their, um, you know, the, the way that they, um, might, uh, lead their congregation, that kind of thing. What's the study there? It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that um, that's kind of more of a basic science study. So we're not looking to kind of uh, address any clinical issue like depression or anxiety or addiction or anything. Um, we're really more just trying to kind of understand uh, the mystical experience. Um, so like we were talking about earlier, this uh, kind of mystical experience, as we uh, kind of call it, which is uh, kind of what we measure in terms of the acute effects of the of the drugs. Um, this has a lot to do with a lot of kind of constructs that exist in all sorts of different religious practices. Um, and of course there are a, a number of kind of religiously based, um, treatments, like for example, um, Alcoholics Anonymous is kind of the, the most, uh, well-known example, but this is, you know, a, basically a religion mysticism based, um, kind of therapy platform, if you will, um, for alcoholism. 
And uh, we um, are kind of doing this as kind of a modern take on the on the Good Friday experiment. I don't know if you're familiar with mm-hmm. the um, the Good Friday experiment done back in the '60s. Walter Pinky gave a number of uh, uh, kind of uh, clergy folks, young I think they're like young all boys, um, uh, hallucinogens um, unknowingly um, <laughs> during one of their services, and then kind of just. Uh, described what happened. <laughs> and um, so we're kind of doing a, a more modern version of that where we're uh, introducing a bit more control. Um, we're looking at actively practicing um, uh, religious leaders from all different types of religions. Um, so we're trying to get a, a lot of diversity in terms of the different uh, kind of like trainings that they've had and their their different experiences. Um, and then we're, we're basically, um, it's an open label study, so everyone gets psilocybin. And um, then we do a kind of semi-structured interview with them um, to talk to them more about their experience. Um, and the, the idea is that these are folks who have been trained in different kind of traditions of mysticism um, or things like it, and that they will have kind of a unique way of describing their experience. How does that relate to Roland Griffith's um, study? I think it was about 10 years ago at Hopkins. Um, it, it's, it, Alex and Alison Gray brought this up when we interviewed them a few months ago. Um, it, Alex was talking about uh, how I think the effect um, that uh, that that study showed was, I mean, just incredibly um, profound. It was something like 60 something percent of, of participants, you know, had a mystical experience. Um, mm-hmm. You know, which is, I mean, not surprising to anybody who's actually who's who's, who's had it, but uh, the fact that it's so yeah. reproducible, um, you know, is is very interesting. So, how does this new study um, compare to that, or is it is it related in any way? Yeah, it's really really related, and we're actually doing this one um, also in conjunction with Roland Griffiths at John on, at Johns Hopkins. So, okay. um, very very similar, um, some kind of different measures and stuff, but but really the the same sort of idea. So, we're looking at um, kind of how psilocybin can elicit mystical experiences, and how those are kind of unique in um, people that are particularly trained in um, interpreting and talking about mystical experiences. Um, and then we're also, we all are, are also asking them some questions about kind of how it affects their practice and the way that they, uh, teach and perform their, uh, their particular religious practices. Sarah, what, what role, if any, will, uh, will fMRI play, uh, in these studies and, um, and then, and, and what value do you, do you see coming from that as it, as it kind of, uh, becomes more and more involved in, in this field? Uh, good question. So we we're not doing any imaging on on our religious professionals, um, but we are doing. Uh, we're about to start some fMRI on our alcohol dependence study. Um, so we uh, just got our first uh, practice participant. One of our uh, research coordinators just got herself scanned, um, and we're ready to start scanning actual participants. Hopefully, in the next month or so. Um, but we will be doing a functional. MRI on a subset of our participants uh, one day before and then one day after their psilocybin experience. Um, so it's uh, it's an interesting design because it's a little bit different than what's been done before in terms of the timing. Um, so we're not going to be doing any scans uh, during any of the acute effects of the drug. So they're going to do the, the medication sessions just like normal. They come in, they lie down on a couch with the blindfold and the headphones and all that. Um, and then we're looking at uh, the neuroimaging 24 hours later. Um, so we're looking at uh, kind of the more long-term effects of, of the drug and, and yeah. what their brain like after. 
Yeah, I was, I was going to say that be, being in an MRI uh, or, or having an MRI done to you while while uh, during the experience sounds like uh, not a good part of set and setting. <laughs> there's like there's a mixed feelings violation. on that, actually. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, so personally, I really like being scanned. I think it's really, really relaxing. <laughs> um, and we do. We give them music um, and headphones. We have all we can do all those things while like they can really have a pretty similar experience in in the actual uh in the scanner, the only difference is that it's, you know, they have to walk into this very medical setting and there's no one there to kind of put their hand on them if they need it or something like that. Um, so for, for kind of a healthy, normal person, that's not addressing some, you know, very serious existential death related anxiety or something like that. It, it can be kind of comparable. Um, but, uh, for some of these, for some of the clinical populations where we're trying to keep it a little bit more non-medical and, and safe. Yeah, by comparison, it makes the uh, questionnaire look, you know, look look like fun in that, in that, that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, so we should just put the word out there to our listeners: you are actively recruiting for these two uh, forthcoming studies, psilocybin uh, as a treatment for alcoholism and addiction, and psilocybin uh, just being given to healthy um, members of the clergy. Um, in both mm-hmm. cases, I understand they um, they can't. I guess participants cannot have had any prior experience with psilocybin in particular or any um any psychedelic substances is that right um that's true for the religious professional study but for for our alcohol dependent study um we are allowing people who have had some experiences we have a limit um for kind of how many that is um but if if anyone out there uh would like to kind of reduce their their drinking and they aren't satisfied with any of the currently available treatments um for uh drinking then please give us a call um and we can talk talk to them a little bit more about what exactly the kind of psychedelic limits are in terms of prior use. Um, but yeah, but that's not necessarily exclusionary for the alcohol study. Excellent. And we'll include, uh, you know, uh, how to contact you in our show notes. Um, but for those listening, um, what is the best way to get in touch with you, Sarah, for the, uh, for these studies? Uh, good question. So, um, we're working on right now, we have our, our website for the cancer study, which is NYU cancer anxiety. Um, That website is currently under construction, but hopefully very soon we'll have all of our contact info up on it. Um, But other than that, we have an email, which is NYU Alcohol Dependence Study uh, at nyumc.org is one of our email addresses. Um, The the best way to find um, all of our trials at the moment is if you get on uh, clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, the government website that houses all uh, clinical trials going on right now. Okay. And um, right now, that's our primary kind of advertising uh, venue. But we're hoping to get a, an NYU website up pretty soon here with all of us. Excellent. Excellent. And we'll, we'll include these links in the show notes for listeners at uh, entheogenshow.com. Um, and uh, Sarah, one last question as we wrap up here. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you and I met at um, uh, the Horizons Conference in New York City a couple months ago. Um, and one thing I thought was really interesting, um, mentioned by, I think it was um, St- uh, Stephen Ross, um, about a, a new sort of like center of research that NYU would like to, um, to you know, to, to put together to, um, to open at some point um, as a way to study specifically psychedelics. I mean, I found that incredibly exciting for uh, obvious reasons. Um, and I think you mentioned a little bit uh, off the air just how, um, you know, how there isn't really a place like a physical place that uh, specializes in this yet. Um, you know, it reminds me of the, just like having to set up these clinics each time, like, you know, getting the Buddha statue 
you out, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, wouldn't it be nice to have a place that, that specializes in this? So can you, can you talk at all about that? I, I was curious about the, I guess it's a $10 million fund that, that, um, you know, that you're seeking to, uh, to found a, a center for psychedelic study. Yeah, sure. So um, we are kind of vision for the future is to have um, an actual physical center um, that will basically kind of house uh, not only these sort of research studies, but also training for people to do studies like this and for therapists to deliver these sorts of treatments. Um, so our, our goal is to develop the center and we would like it to be focused around um, experimental therapeutics or alcohol addiction, other sorts of addictions. Uh, depression, and end-of-life anxiety. Right now, all of the studies that we're doing um, are funded by private donations. Um, so mostly through the Hefter Institute, um, some from USONA, and a couple of other uh, private uh, individuals that are giving us money to do these studies. Um, so we're not getting funding through agencies like NIH or NSF um, for a lot of political reasons. The government at this moment in time is just not interested in funding these studies. Um, so what we can do to change that is, um, kind of seek some, some of these donations to gather pilot data. Um, the reason that we're doing all of these early phase clinical trials is to put data out there to convince NIH to fund studies like this. Um, so we're, we're hoping to put up some sort of platform, uh, that people can go to, to actually look at the studies that we're doing and donate directly to them. Um, and we're, we're hoping to get this together sometime in the next year or two, um, and so far everything's going pretty well, but we've got, we've got a long way to go in terms of, uh, figuring out how to get all of this out there and, you know, how to politically navigate the whole situation. I was uh, fascinated to learn that, um, uh, another, uh, much larger podcaster than, than, than us, uh, Tim Ferriss, uh, author and, and, uh, among many other things, um, raised almost a hundred grand, uh, for psilocybin studies, uh, through, I guess through both his own, um, you know, his, his own private donation, but also through, I guess, uh, crowd rise, um, just, you know, crowdfunding, uh, you know, large amount of, uh, money going, uh, towards psilocybin studies, um, um, so the, the, you know, the support is definitely there from the community. It's definitely a matter of just sort of finding, you know, putting people together, um, find, finding the people that are interested in this and pairing them with, um, you know, the organizations such as NYU, um, who, you know, need the money to, as you said, uh, you know, do some of this, this, um, phase one research really to then demonstrate, you know, both, uh, you know, not only efficacy, but safety, uh, to then mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, convince the, the powers that be that, uh, this, there's real promise here and, uh, that'll really open the floodgates at that point. Cause there's, I mean, there's so much government money going to so many terrible things and, uh, it would be yeah. really amazing to, to, you know, put the power of the government behind something as important as mm -hmm. this type of research. Yeah, that's that's really that's everything that we're trying to do. We're we're hoping to to get some sort of avenue together. And I mean, the response to the to the cancer study from the public was was enormous. Um, all most major news venues across the country picked it up. It got um, I, I hear that it got over a billion views altogether. Um, wow. And it, we're really hoping that we can kind of channel some of that into um, more science and more data on how these things are working. Well, that's excellent. And uh, so, for, you know, by the time the next studies are published, I hope there's a, uh, you know, place um, that these articles can link to to uh, funnel some of that, you know, support in uh, in the form of clicks into uh, cash, you know, being donated to uh, to the cause as well. But in the meantime, uh, what is the best way for our listeners to to support this uh, very important research? 
That is a good question. Um, at the at the moment, send us uh, send us an email. You can also talk to the Hefter Institute. Um, Hefter is a, a really fantastic supporter. Um, they've given us a lot of funding to do a lot of these studies. Um, <clears throat> and some of the other institutions that exist, MAPS is also a huge. Um, they do have a lot of avenues set up to to solicit donations for some of their studies. Um, but if uh, if there are any kind of interested individuals out there, um, feel free to send us an email. Um, although it, it is still kind of politically complicated to, to funnel the money into the science um, right now. So we're, we're hoping in the next, uh, within the next year, we're going to have a, a, a more streamlined way to, to do that available. Excellent. Excellent. And what is that email address to, to reach out to you one more time? Uh, you can get us at NYU Alcohol Dependent Study uh, okay. at nyumc.org. Excellent. Well, um, Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time on this Sunday afternoon and uh, for all the, the hard work you guys are doing, um, it, it, you know, in this really important area of research. Um, and, uh, and just thanks again for joining us on Entheogen. Thank you so much for having me. That was Entheogen, talk about tools for generating the divine within. Find the notes and links for this and other episodes at entheogenshow.com. Sign up to receive an email when we release a new episode. Visit entheogenshow.com and click on support to pledge $2 or $10 per episode on our Patreon campaign. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. And most of all, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.